Thanks for finding Organic Matters again for this week. We're going to be in with a subject that I don't think I've done at least in years, if not in a long time. I try to pick a, a species or sometimes it's plants, sometimes it's animals. In this case, it's going to be a, an insect. And tell you a little bit more about it than you might ordinarily know. And in some cases, uh, maybe educate you a bit about why they are part of our environment. And which creature would you think is a master of architecture? Kind of depend on. And so the creature of the week are wasp. It just makes sense that whenever creatures possess a defense mechanism capable of hurting us, a sting for instance, we categorize them as dangerous. When they look different than we do, we categorize them as strange. And when they get attracted to man-made cities or agricultural fields due to the buffet of food that we lay out for them, we categorize them as a nuisance. When it comes to wasp, somebody, one place or another, call them all of the above and sometimes even more words I probably shouldn't say here. Whenever a creature has a negative reputation, people wonder, why, why do we even need them? Can't we just get rid of them? Think about it. It's a painful reminder of, I call it somewhat of an egotistical mindset. The one that sets us above other species, or at least we think we are. But if we take a moment to learn about other creatures, especially ones that we consider quote-unquote pests, we soon move towards an eco-mindset that, that changes the way we feel. We begin to realize that all species are important to the overall balance of the Earth's ecosystems and that each individual brings something unique and irreplaceable to the table, or in this case, maybe to the planet. When we embody the eco-mindset, we no longer see humans as the only dominant animal on Earth, but as equal participants in nature's very, very interesting and, and intrinsic systems. First, let's kind of say, what is a wasp? The term wasp includes a variety of species that are generally separated by their behavior, and not all of them, incidentally, are yellow and black. In fact, only a 1 or 2% of the wasps sport those colors that we are so used to. Social wasps, such as yellow jackets and hornets, live in colonies with hierarchies similar to bees and ants, while solitary wasps, such as potter's wasps, we'll talk about later, do not. The wasps with social systems usually start a new colony every spring. Each colony begins with a queen, and she will raise a few worker wasps to enlarge the nest and bring food. Once the nest is spacious enough, the queen will lay eggs, and by the end of the summer, there will be sometimes thousands of colony members. Throughout autumn, all wasps will perish except for a few new queens, and they make it through. Over the winter, this new set of royalty will find shelter in a fallen log or an abandoned burrow somewhere, and when spring returns, they'll venture out to create the next group of new colonies. Wasps, unlike honeybees, cannot produce wax. To build nests, most species create a paper-like material out of wood pulp and shape it into cells perfect for rearing the young. The manufacturing process involves gathering wood fibers from strips of bark, softening the wood by chewing it and mixing it with a special saliva, and literally spitting it back out to form the cells. Some species, however, like potter wasp, prefer to design nests from nothing more than just mud. One interesting theory, incidentally, has it that about 2,000 years ago, a Chinese official named Kai Lun invented what we call our modern use of paper after watching wasp build a nest in his garden from the wood fiber. So next time you read a book, write a note 
or receive one of somebody's letters in the mail, you can indirectly thank WASP for their ingenious skills. And let me mention here, this is something I get in little fusses about all the time with people. Although many of us may not enjoy having a wasp nest in or near the house, and I certainly would remove them if they're right where the doorway is, for instance, it's just best to leave them alone whenever possible. Remember that a colony only lasts for a season, and once the wasps leave, you can just remove the nest. And if you need more convincing for leaving wasp nest intact near you, uh, just keep listening. I'm going to give you some, uh, I hope, maybe some facts you've never even heard of how these creatures contribute to our environment. Despite the fact that most people don't even think about it, wasps contribute to man-made gardens and agricultural fields by eating other, much more important pests and insects that do harm to our crops. They're a wide-ranging diet and wide geographical range. They're on every continent on Earth, incidentally, folks, except Antarctica. Means they contribute to human food sources worldwide. Wasps eat flies and grasshoppers and will feed on aphids to, to help their babies, their larvae grow. Some also eat, uh, eat nectar, making them pollinators. As they gather the ne- nectar, they pollinate the next plant. Around the world, many farmers consider them essential for their food production methods. When it comes to food security, we can actually thank wasps for looking after the crops that we make for ourselves. Let's just begin with something very simple. For instance, whenever whenever you might have ever grown your first fig organically. Of course, that means without any pesticides or chemicals. And I'll guarantee you, if you like mine, it was delicious. So now let's connect the two. Although figs are considered a fruit, they're actually just an inverted flower. The fig blooms inside the pod rather than outside. So it relies almost totally on insect pollination to reproduce. It takes a special pollinator to crawl through a little small opening, you've probably seen them, and into the fig's pod to bring that flower its much-needed pollen in order to become a fruit. Wasps lay their eggs in those cavities, so they develop a mutually beneficial, the fancy word is symbiotic, relationship with the figs themselves. Wasps get a home protected from predators to raise their young, and the figs get to be reproduced. As I came across this research, I found another one I just have to talk about. Some species of wasp have developed a really similar mutualistic relationship with orchids. So let's just say the extinction of wasps would not only be detrimental for figs, orchids, and other plants that rely on insect eaters or pollinators, it would also be tragic for the many organisms that eat those plants, not counting just us, which as we, uh, being a somewhat <laughs> of a fig fanatic that now definitely includes me. And another asset about wasp you're probably unaware of. In the case of the invention of paper, crop protection, and pollination, if that's still not enough to impress you, there's at least one species of wasp found in Brazil that produces a toxin in its venom that is found to contain cancer-fighting properties that we're now reproducing. Even the substance that enables some wasps to kill larger prey has been used because it's been shown to contain healing properties. So I hope by, by talking about creatures, a lot of people see as pests. I will be able to do my part in speaking against the way we view and treat not just animals, but insects, all other parts of the environment that are a part of what makes us exist here. I also hope these stories will encourage you to take the time to learn from a number of other of our non-human neighbors. 
back to the idea of making paper. Kai Lun demonstrated the incredible tools we can design when we look at nature for inspiration. Uh, it's kind of a, there's a fancy name for that. It's a practice known as biomimicry. The solutions are all around us, but it's up to us to be still, inquisitive, and open-minded, and to let Mother Nature show off her magic, hopefully, always, for our goodness. Let's change the subject here a minute, but we'll try to do another good kind of news, although this is, uh, let's say it's mixed, as you hear it. It's just going to be a couple minutes. You'll see what I mean by mixed. The alarming rate of carbon dioxide flowing into the atmosphere is having a real and actually, in some cases, a positive effect on some plant life. Higher concentrations of carbon dioxide make plants more productive because photosynthesis makes use of the sun's energy to synthesize the sugar out of the carbon dioxide and water. So many of the plants, including trees, use both the sugar as a source of energy and as the basic building block of carbon growth as well as the carbon dioxide. When carbon dioxide levels go up, plants can take it up faster, in essence supercharging their rate of photosynthesis. In a new study that was published in the journal Nature, I found it incidentally at Ohio State University, trees are feasting on decades of carbon dioxide emission. They're definitely growing bigger as a result. As a matter of fact, researchers tracked wood volume in 10 different tree groups for about 10 years and found that except for a couple, for some reason, aspens and birches, don't, it doesn't help them. The others all grew larger. Over that time period, carbon dioxide levels climbed from 363 parts per million to over 405 parts per million. According to the study, for each 1% Increase in the lifetime of CO2 exposure to the trees, it led to almost a 1% increase in wood volume. Sounds good so far, doesn't it? Sounds great if, um, if trees are our only uh, plant we have to live on. However, in the big picture, the news isn't quite so good. The global warming caused by increasing carbon dioxide levels increasingly threatens the forest in the world indirectly. It has led to worsening droughts, insect infestations, and wildfires. So overall, increasing levels of carbon dioxide are by no means a good thing on the world's trees in the long run. However, since trees are growing bigger more quickly, it means that planting them is an increasingly cost-effective method of fighting climate change because the same number of trees, obviously, would sequester more carbon. Makes perfect sense to me. One other study that I'm just going to cite here because I don't have it in front of me. I always try to have my facts right here, but I do remember it well. They did some controlled studies, and the only one that I know about happened to be with redwood trees. And yes, we can, I want to use the word, force grow them. The carbon dioxide helps. We can boost them with literally the perfect fertilizer. And we can increase that tree size about a third quicker than Mother Nature could. Sounds good on the surface, doesn't it? Here's the bad news. When they started using that wood and studying the results of it, the tree did grow a third faster. Guess what? The stable strength of each of those trees was about a third less than a tree that was grown more naturally and slower. So it was a mixed bag. In other words, the tree did grow faster, but it wasn't as strong, not just to use as lumber, but even to, 
uh, for the natural um, fires and winds and tornado, whatever the tree has to go through. The tree is not intrinsically as strong as it would be if it grew at its normal rate. So there's a playoff there that's kind of just attached to this, but I wanted you to know about it. There's always in physics and in biology and everywhere in the world, there's almost always a trade-off. If something comes too good to be true, sometimes and many times, it is too good to be true to you really look into it. So anyway, uh, wasps and trees, not a direct connection, but part of my show, Organic Matters. Thanks for tuning in.